Hi, this is Jeff Madoff, and I'm here with my friend, Dan Sullivan, founder of Strategic Coach. And we're here to talk about anything and everything. We're going to try to focus it a bit today. And that's about mistakes that entrepreneurs make. Dan has seen a barge load of them, as have I, not to mention I've made some of them myself. So we thought we'd get in there and really give you guys some useful tools to both recognize mistakes and ways that you might deal with them. So Dan, I'll start off asking you a question, which is, what do you see as a common thread among entrepreneurs in terms of the early mistakes that they make? Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, first of all, their becoming an entrepreneur may have been the mistake because <laughs> <laughs> not everybody's up to it. As you know, you know, from decades and decades of experience that someone could have sort of a, what I would call a magical thinking notion of what entrepreneurship is from being in an environment where there's a lot of them. And I would say that probably Manhattan <laughs> is probably an area where it's just rich with entrepreneurial glamour and entrepreneurial role models. And so my sense is that it's easy to get kind of tempted. I mean, they look at the people who become entrepreneurs and they say, are they smarter than me? Or it seems like it's an easy thing to do and they get in for the wrong reasons. Then they hang on, you know, they hang on just surviving. And I would say, right off the bat, that that's the biggest mistake that they can make. They're not really entrepreneurial from the standpoint that they would be able to actually transform themselves sufficiently to get a handle of what being an entrepreneur actually is. So before I even get to responding to what you said, I want to ask you another question, which is, what is an entrepreneur? How would you define it? You know, I'm kind of a very basic, start with basic definitions. And the best definition that I've ever seen was the original, which is 1804, a Frenchman by the name of Say, very famous, what we'd call an economist today, but he was a great student of Adam Smith, actually, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations. So 1776 is considered probably the first major book which really, really describes how wealth gets created inside of countries and internationally. And what Jean-Baptiste Say said was that an entrepreneur is someone who takes resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher level of productivity. Okay. So thereby laying out that there's two things involved. There's resources and there's productivity. Okay, but you need an agent to actually do that. It doesn't happen naturally. And what he was trying to show that it's individuals who using resources in a different way that produce value in a different way, a higher level of value. And, you know, based on how things are being done now, it's much more productive. You get much more gain per amount of energy put into it. He was really queried by that because it was so general, like resources. And he said, well, what kind of resources? And he says, well, actually, almost any kind of resource. He said, almost anything. He said, an idea could be a resource, and an entrepreneur can take an idea from a lower level to a higher level. Or it could be a product, and you take the product, which is a resource, 
and you take it to a higher level, or it can be an existing capability and you take the capability to a higher level, or it can be a natural resource, something out of the ground, and you take that resource and take it to a higher level. And I think the reason why it shows up in 1804 is that you had just gone through about 25 years of proof from Great Britain with Watt, James Watt, who created the first steam engine, that there was a capability now possible for new entrepreneurs to actually take advantage of a new technological capability and suddenly produce multiplier gains in productivity. And my sense is that this entrepreneurism had been going on forever, but you didn't have a multiplier which really proved that you could do something on a big scale. So prior to the steam engine, you basically had human power and you had animal power and you had wind power and water power, and that was it. And that hadn't changed very, very much in several thousand years. But suddenly, within a 25-year period, well, James Watt, it's around 1775 that James Watt comes up with the process, and they used the steam engine to get coal <laughs> out of the mines and to pump water out of the mines. So if they had a good coal mine, the, one of the real problems was underground rivers that got flooded, and they needed pumps that would pump the water out of the mines. So they created a new capability to get an old resource out of the ground much more cheaply. And then they could start using steam engine to actually haul the coal up to the surface. They could use steam engines in trains to actually carry the coal. So it seems like very basic stuff in the 21st century, but it was revolutionary. You know, England led the way there for the next hundred years. England was the great industrial power and it just went everywhere. England had the legal system and they had the political system that would support this sudden outbreak of relative nobodies. These weren't educated people. These were not wealthy people. They weren't titled people suddenly becoming big deals. And so we are here with our Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and all that. And they're really big deals. But it all started right around that time, around 1800. So the description of, say, that an entrepreneur is someone who takes resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher level of productivity. Yeah. I'll just finish off here and get your views on it. But you taking the life of Lloyd Price and, first of all, taking it and putting it in a documentary film was an act of entrepreneurship. Okay, but then taking the story that you had distilled down into a documentary and then turning it into a play, into a play script. That's another form of entrepreneurship. And then actually the next stage now is to take that written script and turn it into an actual play. All three of those are jumps in productivity of a basic resource, which was the lifetime of someone who was very, very famous, very, very groundbreaking, but had been forgotten. And, you know, it's interesting because in doing the play, that's also given me the opportunity to take all the lessons that I have learned and apply them to this. And one of the things that I think is really difficult for entrepreneurs starting out 
And of course, most entrepreneurs start out small. And that is, they don't delegate. <laughs> and, you know, because the first thing you have to do is, you know, if you're going to grow at all, it can't all depend on you, you know, because everything becomes, you know, a one at a time thing. And I think that there's a prevailing thought, and certainly in a number of entrepreneurs that I've talked to about this, that they think no one else can do it right, which is a huge trap. Because if you think you're the only one that can do it right, you're never going to break out of the starting gate in the way that you need to. You might build up a profitable business for a while, but you're going to hit major obstacles. Do you see that also is that mm -hmm. oftentimes entrepreneurs starting out just don't know how to delegate and think they're the only ones that can do it right and that therefore impedes their progress or keeps them small? It's not actually a decision. It's just that they're under such pressure to actually pay the rent, really, that they don't even have time. You know, usually they'll get a project of some sort. The project is the delivery of product or the project is execution of something. And, uh, you know, it's like being in love for the first time. It's all consuming the project. You don't realize that there's got to be a cycle to this of marketing the contracts in hand while you're doing that. You also have to be paying the bills. But not only that, you have to be marketing to get the contracts that are going to follow. I would see it's that inability to see the cycle of existing business, getting new business, that probably the vast majority of failures in entrepreneurship actually happen. They just run out of cash, and it's because they didn't have time to create new opportunity at the same time that they were executing existing business? Well, you know, there's a saying in the theater about certain actors who do one-man shows, <laughs> that there's a reason they're doing a one-man show. <laughs> Try working with them. But I think there is a certain mindset that becomes an obstacle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you think you're the only one that can do it right. Well, the other thing is that they've kind of gotten some bad mindsets about if you do get someone who actually works for you, how you treat that person. That's right. You know, and I think that they've seen too many corporate movies, you know, movies where there's a boss and then there's the workers and there's a way that you treat them. You know, it's iffy business. You know, I can liken it to like first dates. I can liken it to, you know, the first time you go to a dance and you ask somebody to dance. I mean, there's there's a trepidation or the first time you've ever been on stage, you know, there's just a whole set of nerves that get triggered when you're an entrepreneur and you go out and try to be an entrepreneur that I don't think there's any life experience that can prepare you for it. I think you're right. And, you know, you mentioned about getting money and the getting of money, <laughs> the getting of money, which I think is also it's critical when you do that. You know, the earlier you take on money, which another term for that is debt, you know, but when you take on investors, you're not going to negotiate a very good deal at the beginning if it's too early in your business because you don't really have enough of a proof of concept. And it's a high risk venture because all businesses are high risk ventures. So how do you decide when to take on money or when to continue to bootstrap? Because my belief is the longer you can 
stave off having to bring in outside funding, the stronger the negotiating position you will be in when you finally do have to take it on. Yeah. And in your case, and in my case too, I won't necessarily call it the entrepreneurial experience, but we had early selling something experience. I mean, I think both of, you know, our selling experience starts before 10 years old. Okay. Both of us finished high school and <laughs> you went to college earlier than I did. I, I did it after a few years, but you start to understand there's a cycle of finding out what people want, supplying what they want and getting paid for doing it. And if it starts early and you see this and it goes on for a year, you've kind of got that down. You kind of know how to present yourself. You know how to show up. You know how to show up in a way that gets you further business and you show up in a way that gets you referred to other people who would be interesting. And it doesn't take much these days to be impressive. The one thing I have going I think going for young people becoming an entrepreneur these days is there's so many layabouts in their generation that just the fact that they have initiative is like a neon sign, business open for business. I think a lot more confusion in the teenage, early 20s population these days about what the marketplace is and what's my life going to be and everything like that. I think that if you show any initiative too, and this would be a real breakthrough, you actually ask the other person what they would like. <laughs> I mean, if what you want right now got supplied to you, what would that look like? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what I think you're talking about is also, well, it's a couple of things. One is being aware of the general landscape mm -hmm. and knowing if there is a marketplace for what you've got, how do you present to that marketplace? I don't know that, you know, I, I work with college students all the time because I teach every week. And I've been doing that for 14 years. A lot of really bright kids who have a lot of initiatives, some of them starting businesses while they're still in school. Others have their eye on a certain target and others who are sort of wondering, maybe it's a good idea to learn on somebody else's dime mm -hmm. and accumulate resources and contacts. And they kind of have a plan. I mean, I always marvel when I'm talking to these 21-year-olds that have a five-year plan, and I don't know what I'm having for dinner that night. You know, But I would take issue with the question of the layabouts, because I don't know that that was any different in our generation. There's a lot of people yeah. that just you know aren't ready. Mm -hmm. And they don't present in a way that gives you confidence. And I think, you know, when we were kids, we did not grow up with all of the models of young people starting businesses that we see now. Mm -hmm. So I think it, you know, creates a different thing, but it also creates, I think, a higher bar of expectation that if you're going to start something, it's got to get huge. You know, there's various streams of entrepreneurship, you know, and like I've never been a product entrepreneur. I never was looking for a particular kind of product. I'm more of an idea entrepreneur. I'm selling particular ideas, okay? And that's at the head of the stream, and then you have to get really, really smart about what a product is, mm -hmm. and you have to get really smart about why would anybody pay you for an idea? You started off on the product side, but you ended up completely on the idea side, 
I started off on kind of a product side in the sense that I was a writer and I could do layouts sufficiently that that it got me paid. So yeah, I had advertising skills from a big agency. Three years at a big um, global agency will give you marketable skills. But I think the ultimate decider is, and this is hard to grasp when you're in your 20s or 30s, but it's easier to grasp in your 40s and 50s because what you thought was going to make you happy as a successful entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you find out it actually didn't. It actually didn't. There has to be a deeper achievement to make that. So I would like to use that juncture, which happens maybe in your 30s and 40s, 40s and 50s, as a place to re-engineer who I think starts off really well and who starts off badly. My sense after close to 50 years, it'll be 50 years in 2024 since I started my coaching business. So 74 to 2024, it was be 50 years. And hands down, the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who realize that the reason why you do it is for freedom. Well, so there you're touching on something I think that's really important because I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a couple of things. One is that they don't really know where they want to go. Or if they end up having to pivot their business, which is hard to do, but, you know, so many companies didn't end up where they started off or where they thought they were going to go. So you have to be nimble and flexible in order to do that. But the part that you're talking about, which I think is very important, is why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. And do you have an objective in this? Is your objective the accumulation of wealth? Is your objective seeking fulfillment through your work? Is it to create a situation where you have more freedom in terms of what it is that you can choose to do or not to do? Mm -hmm. Because I think freedom is all about choice, right? You know, you're free if you have choices. If you don't have choices, you're not free. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of those things that when you're starting out, it's almost impossible to anticipate those are going to be questions that you have. But I think as we get older, one of the things is I think the realization that time runs out, you know, and you want to be thinking about, is this what I want to be doing? And if you didn't really have a clear idea at the beginning, it gets really hard to make that change because change to what? Mm -hmm. You don't really know. And why am I doing it? And I think that sense of purpose is critical. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn this into a question for you, which is since you deal with so many entrepreneurs and have dealt with so many over the span of your career, what percentage would you say? And I know this is rough, but what percentage would you say five years into their business, they discovered they weren't in the business they thought they were going to be in? One of the Things where I have a great deal of ignorance is the early part of most of my entrepreneur's career, because I'm picking them up at a high level of income. So we have a minimum income right now that's $200,000. What you take home from your business has to be over 200000 You know, we started much lower at an earlier part, but we've always had this minimum that pretty well eliminated about Right now, with 200,000, you're in the upper 1% or 2% of entrepreneurs. It's very, very interesting that they've never really changed careers from the time I knew them. You know, I can count on, you know, maybe 
two hands out of 6,000 that I personally contacted, on two hands, people who actually made a significant career choice. What they do is they'll be more general in a career or a general in a particular industry. Then they'll get very, very specialized in a particular aspect of it. Okay. They'll zero in on a niche with a particular time of customer, but they're still, they haven't switched to a different river. They're still in the same river. They're in the financial river, let's say financial services, but they've gotten very, very specific to solving a particular type of situation, transforming a particular type of situation. And I see that in almost all of them. And one of the things that develops, and it goes back to the beginning of the entrepreneurial career. And one of the mindsets that really gets, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs off their game and out of the game is that they kind of treat the customer as an adversary. Mm. It's a demanding adversary. You have this sort of demanding adversary. And the adversary is looking for ways not to pay as much. You know, you kind of get the sense that you're up against a negative judgment. right? And the ones who really make it is where you take the best of the customers and you turn them into partners. Right. Yeah, I mean, I have a phrase that I use, which is looking out for my client's best interests is in harmony with looking out for my own. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would not have had Ralph Lauren for 37 years, or Victoria's Secret for 26 years, if I wasn't, thinking about their needs. And I think that leads to, I think, what is a big mistake that entrepreneurs and businesses make, which is you have your own agenda, but you're not considering the agenda of the person on the other side of the desk, or oftentimes even your employees, Mm -hmm. which can lead to a lot of employee turnover, which is very expensive and hard to retrain people into whatever culture you have. But I think you're really right. If you look at these relationships as adversarial, as opposed to being empathic to, well, what are their needs? What are they looking for? And I think if you're just selling and you're not realizing that, that somehow you've got to win every deal. You've got to win every negotiation. I killed them. I got, you know. Yeah. And I don't think that's a long term. I mean, some businesses succeed doing that, but for the most part, I think it's a pretty miserable way to live and to relate to the people who you spend most of your time with. Yeah, well, it's interesting. If I go back, you know, I was a copywriter at the Toronto headquarters for a big global advertising. Still there. I think they're still in the top 10 BBDO, you know, big multi-round-the-world advertising agency. So I was a new guy in the shop, and the way they at least got a return on their investment is they collected all the fee-for-service clients. So this is, generally speaking, any agency, if you go back 20 years, the agency you see now is an amalgamation of four or five other agencies, you know, especially if they're allied in a big global network, they've purchased little agencies. And every one of those agencies had kind of fee-for-service clients. And these are people who you didn't make any money on the media placement because they weren't on television, they weren't on radio, they weren't in the newspapers, but they were doing brochures, they were doing 
manuals and and the ad agency was a natural for actually executing. You had good writers. They knew how to produce things. They had all the supplier relationships that you would need in uh, terms of printers and other type of film studios and audio studios and everything like that. So what they did is they consolidated about 10 of these small clients and they made me the overall writer and layout guy. I was good enough as a layout artist that I could give an image to the client that would sort of tell the client what we were doing. And then we had the much better artists in the agency and then outside the agency who would do finished artwork. But one of the things that was a stroke of luck for me, and I didn't realize it until about three years in, is that almost all these fee-for-services businesses were entrepreneurial-owned businesses. They weren't corporate businesses. So we had big corporate customers. We had Kraft, we had Chrysler, and then we had one of the big banks, which is even bigger now, TD, which is all through the States, you know, big Canadian banks. There were some others who were really huge corporations then have now been gobbled up by other corporations, so they don't have a name that's significant. And that's where the money went because they had the media placement. The agency was making its money on a 17%. So whatever the advertising bill was, the agency got 17% of how much money the corporation. And that's how the advertising agencies still run. I don't know what the cut is these days, but that 17% was gold. And, you know, all the efforts of the agency management and the top creative people was to secure those big corporate clients and 17%. But they needed to take care of these small ones, so they gave them to me. And it actually gave me the beginning of my business because I began to realize that the biggest problem that these entrepreneurial clients were having wasn't going to be solved by advertising. (laughs) They just didn't have any strategic sense. Some of them were second and third generation family businesses, and they just had no way of thinking about the future. So I've always had a great concept of picking a time in the future three years from now if we were It's a very famous part of our strategic coach process right now. And say, you know, if we were here three years from today and we're having a discussion and we're looking back to today, what has to happen over that three-year period for you to be happy with your success? Well, that's a killer question, you know, because there's only one expert on the planet who knows the answer to that question. And that is? And that's the customer, Mm -hmm. you know, and what you find very, very quickly is that in the entrepreneurial business world, there's no division between their personal life and their business life. Where in a corporation, you'd never get any personal answers because they don't even know if they're going to be there three years from now, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a strict division of business life, personal life in the corporate world. And you don't see that in the entrepreneurial world at all. Especially if it's the owner. I mean, <laughs> the, right. the company's a personal possession, you know. So anyway, so I did that over and over again. And over a period of two or three years, my skills got better. My writing skills got better. But my ambition to be in advertising went down. And I got the idea that this thing I was doing on the agency's payroll 
was the business I could have by myself outside. I could get this type of customer outside. And every time I took on an assignment for that two or three years, I was rehearsing. Right. Well, and that's a good example, what I was talking about earlier, which is before you start a business, you know, some people want to dive right in, but it's not at all a bad idea. No, no before you started business, you had already started business. Yes. Yes. It's just you didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, apply it to yourself. I mean, out of Madison, when you were finished at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and you went immediately into fashion, you went into the clothing business. But take me back and re-engineer before that. What part of the business that you got into had you already been rehearsing before you actually started the business? Probably the most important part, which was selling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I knew how to sell things. Now, the good thing about your business is when you're selling ideas, you don't have to worry about getting stuck with inventory. Yeah. <laughs> and inventory is what sinks a lot of businesses. You know, knowing how to sell and knowing the concerns. In other words, why would they want to buy whatever it was I was selling? You know, so I thought it was really important to have an understanding of who I was selling to so that I could address their needs or somehow be able to talk to them in a way. And that talking to them in a way also meant, and this is something else I'd like us to touch on, is listening. (laughs) Because there are so many bosses, there are so many entrepreneurs that don't listen. You know, they think that they have the way. And I think that that shutting themselves off from that kind of sometimes criticism or feedback can be a very dangerous thing to do for your business. Mm -hmm. How important do you think listening skills are in terms of building a business? Well, next to breathing, I think that... (laughs) 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 Thank you for listening to part one of the podcast. Dan Sullivan and I have a lot more to talk about coming up in part two. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. Music